All right. Uh, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the library. Sorry for the delay. Uh, this is our first event of the year, so we're still, you know, kind of kicking out the kinks, getting ready uh, for our programming. So uh, this kicks off our One Book, One College program on the novel Frankenstein, which is very exciting. We're going to be doing a range of fun programs, especially as we get closer uh, to Halloween. Uh, today, we're kind of going down some interesting paths, the psychology of monstrosity. So we'll see uh, what that means. Uh, I want to introduce our awesome speakers. So first, we have uh, Dr. Laura Lazen-Collins from Psychology. Um, if you're interested in psychology, I think you should take one of her classes. Um, really fantastic. So welcome, Laura. And also, yes, round of applause, yeah. <laughs> and also, Jason King, who I could tell you what he teaches, but the best way to describe Jason King is kind of like our campus renaissance man. If there's something to be known or to be studied, Jason probably has studied it from like the economics of like, you know, 1800s um, Russia up to um, just teaching math, which is kind of amazing. So Jason's going to do our de a demonstration of what being a monster is all about. So um, thank you all for being here and I'll turn it over to our panel members. Thank you. Okay, yeah, I'm good. Okay, you guys ready? Okay, so we are going to talk about the psychology of monstrosity. And what we are focusing on first is just what is monstrosity? When I say monstrosity, when someone is called a monster, what are we referencing? What do we mean when we use that word? Um, especially in psychology, what does it mean about the human psyche to be monstrous? Okay, so we are going to start with monsters in literature across culture and across time. I just want to point out some of the monsters because monsters have been around for thousands of years. We've been talking about monsters. Okay, so what do we mean when we say monsters? Well, we can look at the Minotaur or Medusa from ancient Greece. You know, these things are thousands of years, thousands of years old. We could go back to medieval Europe and talk about there are lots of monsters in medieval Europe as well. The doppelganger, dragons, doppelganger um, is, is basically like an alternative version of yourself. This is one that I still see pop up online from time to time. People will talk about having a doppelganger and it's creepy and there's someone else out there who's pretending to be you, a shadowy you. Um, we've got monsters in pretty much every culture. I just picked out, you know, one of those cultures, Native American culture. We've got monsters in, in that culture's history. And of course, we have more of our modern, you know, American or Western um, monsters. So what I'd like you guys to think about is what are some of the commonalities that you see among these different kinds of monsters? What are some of the things that you all see? So I'm asking you. It's not a rhetorical question. Go ahead. Evil? Okay, they're evil. And how do you know that they're evil? Yeah. They cause harm towards others. Okay. Anything else that you see that they might have in common? A lot of them are disfigured. So physical disfigurement. Okay, so they're evil. They cause harm. Uh, they're physically disfigured. Um, do you think monsters can ever be, yeah. A lot of them represent, like, 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We do see animal representation. You're absolutely right in some of them, which make them not quite fully human, but maybe partially human. Okay, so what I'd like to do is kind of pull apart some of the themes that that I see when I, I look at monsters and, you know, I, I think from, psych from a psychological point of view, when we look at these monsters in literature and across time, what are some of the themes that we can pick out? And some of them are themes that you guys picked out, okay? So first is fear of difference, fear of the other, okay? And sometimes this can be a physical difference that we can look towards. So someone who is physically very different but, but maybe has some aspects that remind us a little bit of, of humans, okay? The next one is this idea of dualities. And this is a really common theme in both literature, um, and this is also a common theme in psychology as well. I, I don't know if I'm getting too far from this or what. Okay, so um, this idea that we are all good and evil. We all have good and evil in us. We all have a good side and a bad side. And that the monster represents a bad side that's a part of all of us. Okay, and we'll dig a little bit more into that. The next theme that I see and is one that someone mentioned here, this idea that they do bad things. Okay, and that perhaps monstrosity is a consequence for engaging in social transgressions, okay? So maybe it's not just that monsters do break social norms, but maybe people become a monster once they've broken social norms, okay? And we'll talk about how that might happen. And then Jason's going to take on social anxieties and the future. Um, and, and the past, I guess. You're really focused on the past, but we could also look at the future social anxieties as well. We're doing kind of like a tag team thing. So Laura's going to do all the awesome stuff, and I'm going to talk specifically about social anxieties in 19th century England. Yeah, okay. All right, so let's start with fear of difference, fear of the other. So in what ways, in what ways can monsters be different from us? In what ways can monsters be different from us? And we've already heard about one. What was one of them? Disfigured, right? Disfigured. So one is they are disfigured. There is an external deformity. Okay? There's something that makes them different that we can see. Okay? We can connect this to psychology. Um, and, you know, the, the connection between literature and psychology are oftentimes that physical deformity is representing some kind of moral deformity or internal flaw, okay? I will also say, though, that in psychology, when we think about judging people by appearances, and this is a theme from the book as well, when we ourselves judge others by appearance, what might you call that? Is that a good behavior to do? Is that a good thing to do or a bad thing to do? When you judge other people, you see someone else, you see how they look, and you're like, you know, I don't like that person, or I think that person is a jerk just by how they look. Would you say that that's moral behavior? Okay. 
So I, I think that a lot of us would say we shouldn't really judge before we've, we've spoken to a person, before we've gotten to know a person. And one of the themes that we see in Frankenstein is this issue, you know, is Frankenstein's creature really the monster? I don't know how many of you guys have read the book. I'm guessing probably just a handful. But one of the themes is, is it really the monster who's a monster? Or is it the people and how they treat him? Okay? And do we, do we develop monstrous kind of behavior when we're mistreated repeatedly again and again and again over time because we're being judged? The other kind of difference that we can think of, the other kind of other, you know, beyond just a physical other, would be an internal other, an internal kind of other. Um, so these might be differences that are not as, as visible, but things about one's character or one's personality that we might label as monstrous or that society might label as monstrous. And I think that oftentimes our newer kind of horror, you know, movies and our newer monsters are often those who have an internal monstrosity, one that we can't see. So is it scarier to have, be an external deformity or is it scarier for someone to look like us but be monstrous inside? What do you all think? Interior, probably. And, that, and that's what, again, a lot of modern horror really focuses on. So if we think about some of the ways that this has been shown in you know, media, we can think, or in real life, we can think about witches, we could think about people with disease. Um, for example, uh, leprosy colonies, for instance, we used to completely you know, uh, make people who had a certain kind of disease um, live by themselves with one another and not, not be a part of society. Um, and in terms of that pure internal difference that we're not going to be able to see, we could also think about serial killers, okay, as monstrous having an internal monstrosity. So that's the other. Why do we fear other? Okay, well, there is a really good reason why we fear other. I would like you guys to think about what life was like 50,000 years ago. Okay, 50,000 years ago, would we be sitting in this building? No. Where are we going to be? Outside, right? Maybe some caves. We're going to be spending a lot of time outside. There are a lot of things that can, that can kill us. You know, disease, lack of food, etc. But really one of the most dangerous things, if you think about our past, is other people. That's still true, okay? We used to live in small groups. Uh, you know, scientists estimate probably about 30 to 50 people, small groups. We used to, you know, live together. And it was right to be wary of the other, of other groups, because they might be there to do us harm. They might be there to take resources. And we know from today that uh, when we label someone other, whatever that category is for you, okay, when we label someone as other, there are these structures inside the brain called the amygdala, and they get triggered when we see the other, okay? And when we see the other, we're not thinking with our prefrontal cortex here that allows us to be rational and logical, 
you know, and having like really deep, meaningful conversations. Instead, we're thinking with our amygdala and half of what that person is saying, whoever the other is, we're not even listening to what they're saying. We've just got alarm bells ringing in our brain saying danger, danger, danger. Okay. So that is what has been left to us from evolution. And again, it used to be very adaptive. It used to be quite effective. Today, it's very dividing because we do have access to so many different kinds of people and lots of people are, are connected and we encounter lots of different kinds of people when we categorize them as other. You know, that's really part of the brain that's saying that other is potentially dangerous, potentially monstrous, and, and we should stay away. Okay? Um, so there is a very definite social categorization of us versus them. Another factor in fearing difference is this thing called cognitive dissonance. Okay? So we have certain expectations about the way the world is supposed to work and how things are supposed to go and how people are supposed to behave. And when they behave differently from that, it throws us off. Okay? It makes us um, unsettled. So when we see someone who's different or who's behaving differently or who even is diff eating different kinds of food, that can trigger alarm bells of other, of difference and perhaps you know, then connecting that to being dangerous. We also have a need for predictability and other challenges that predictability. I've got a picture, I don't know if anybody's seen this film. This is an old one, Clockwork Orange. Clockwork Orange. How many have seen that one? A few, okay. Um, yeah, I mean, he's kind of the epitome. Alex, this is an old film, okay? Uh, and it's messed up. Um, so if you ever want to see an old, messed up, kind of scary film, uh, this is a good one to see. Uh, and this main character really represents, in the first half of the movie, the epitome of unpredictability and unpredictable danger. When things are unpredictable, we feel unsafe. Okay? So when other people are causing unpredictability, we tend to label them as dangerous and, again, monstrous. Okay, next factor would be human dualities. So human dualities, here we're talking about, again, the reflection of the self. The reflection of the self. So we've got Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. We've got, God, I'm blanking on the name. Two-Face? Fight Club. Fight Club, Fight thank Club. you, yes. Fight Club. Um, we've got Fight Club. I don't, again, don't know if anybody's familiar with that movie either, but... Uh, in Fight Club, we've got basically one character being represented by two different actors. Okay, so kind of the, the self that he more identifies with, sees has himself more of a maybe boring but somewhat good person, and then kind of the evil, unpredictable side of himself. And there are many theorists, you know, old theorists from psychology who would argue this is a real thing. This is a part of all of us. We all have a good side and a dark side. And I think that they would say, people like Carl Jung would say, you know, authors um, are going to play with this concept because they all know that it's, it's a part of who we truly are, a part of how we are on the inside. In fact, Jung talked a lot. He was a psychologist, a very early psychologist, probably more of a philosopher, but many people categorize him as a psychologist. 
Um, and he talked about how we all have this battle to wage. He said it was our, our second battle that we have to wage is that we have to confront and integrate the shadow into ourselves. We have to acknowledge that those negative things that you know pop into our mind, that those aren't from others, those are us. And we have to acknowledge that and incorporate that. And I think a lot of times, movies will take advantage of those that, that other dark part of ourselves, okay? Um, here's a nice quotation from Carl Jung. Okay, so he talks about, again, how, that this, this dark side, the shadow side is not just like a, an easy kind of, oh, I have a few negative thoughts here and there. It was a very deep, dark uh, part of our being that he would say we need to incorporate to become a true, full person. Okay, um, in terms of Frankenstein, I think many people see Frankenstein, so for those of you who haven't read the book and aren't familiar with it, um, Dr. Frankenstein is the person who creates the creature, okay? And the creature that we call in like popular media, we call him Frankenstein, the one with like green makeup and stuff. Um, we, we often call him Frankenstein, he's not Frankenstein, he's the creature that was created by Dr. Frankenstein, okay? Um, and I think that in this original novel, Dr. Frankenstein's denial of kind of maybe some of the negative aspects of himself and some of the things that he was doing um, comes up in the struggle between himself and the creature, the creature being kind of a part of him, maybe representing the shadow self that Carl Jung talked about. This destructive um, thing that happens also when we don't acknowledge that shadow self. So a lot of the book is about how Dr. Frankenstein was really avoiding the, the creature that he had created. And that avoidance of the creature caused all sorts of problems for him and for the creature in the book. Um, when we think about human dualities and we think about our dark selves, I think oftentimes we're fascinated by those who have engaged in and you know, engaged with their darker selves. So I think that we have a lot of fascination in our culture with people who have killed many other people. You know, we've got here um, a nurse, a British nurse, who had um, killed some infants in her care. Anybody know who that is at the bottom? Ted Bundy, okay. Uh, then we've got John Wayne Gacy. Anyone know him? BTK. Yep, BTK, killer. This I don't know how to pronounce his, his last name. I know how to spell it. Uh, Ed? Ed Gein, I think. Gein? Gein? I've heard Gein? it both ways. Yeah, I thought it was Gein, but I wasn't sure. Okay, um, so Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Anybody recognize him? He's more recent. I'm going to rely on you for pronunciation here. Uh, Fritzel, I think. Fritzel, okay. Joseph Fritzel. So uh, he was uh, someone who had imprisoned his daughter. Do you guys remember this story? He's in Austria. Um, imprisoned his daughter for 24 years, had multiple children with her. This is a, uh, a Soviet that Andrei Chikatilo was his name. He's 
I don't know if there's a premier Soviet serial killer, but this would be him. Grew up during some really rough times during World War II. They think it kind of like unhinged his brain a little bit. Okay. Um, and then finally, we have one of the most famous serial killers that you guys probably have seen an image of before, but maybe not everybody's familiar with. Anyone know this guy? H.H. H. Holmes. Do you guys know what he did or where he was located? Chicago. And killed a lot of people. <laughs> okay. Um, I believe brought them into his building and um, yeah. Yeah. Jason he, knows more about this one. He kind of built a whole like mansion of horror where you would come in and he would suffocate you and he would throw you into an airtight area and then he would vivisect you or dissect you and sell your body to different medical laboratories. Okay, so I have a question, <laughs> you know, why are we so fascinated with all of these people? Yes. Yes, so she said it's interesting to think that somebody is capable of doing something like this. Yeah, I, I think that that is a big part of it. And we're, we're interested to see, well, you know, maybe why did they do it or what did they do or how is it even possible that someone could do this? And Carl Jung would talk about this as our fascination with others is really a fascination with ourselves. Okay. An evolutionary psychologist would say, no, no, <laughs> it's because you want to stay safe. So you want to keep track of all of your threats. Okay. Um, so different psychologists are going to have different takes on our, on our fascination. All right. Oh, okay. So this is Jason. What are the greatest? There's a really fun 80s horror movie called The Monster Squad. If you've never seen it before, it is a hoot. And one of the theories in it, well, one of the, the things that happens in it is it's these kids who are recruiting monsters to go kill Dracula, who has showed up in their world. And there's a guy that lives on their corner, and he's called Scary German Guy because he speaks German and because he's old, and so he's scary. And one day they're walking by his house, and they say, God, I wonder how you say, please don't kill me. And he walks right up and says, bitte mörden Sie uns nicht. And Scary German Guy is right there. And they have a talk, and this is kind of the end of the talk with, with Scary German Guy. If you notice, this is something I didn't notice as a kid, but there's a telltale whole side to him that you notice in the very last two seconds of what he says. Okay, where's Troy? The audio there is bad. Is there something that I can do to make it so that it's clear? Turn it up or down? Try up. Okay, I'll turn my microphone off.
Watch his arm when he closes the door. Did anyone see what was on his arm? Yes. So on his arm was a tattoo of a number. So that number meant that he was in the Holocaust. He was a Holocaust survivor. So when he says, you know, I kind of do know a lot about monsters. He's specifically saying, yeah, and they're, they're human beings and they're out there. Right. Yeah. And it's just an interesting kind of clip to connect to what we were just talking about. Okay. So we've talked about the other. We've talked about human duality. Let's talk about social transgressions. So social transgressions would be another reason why we might consider someone to be a monster. We might say that they are a monster because they've broken social norms. They've engaged in social taboos. And this is a way that we might call someone else out and say, oh, that person's a monster. Can you believe that they did this fill in the blank? Okay. Um, and of course, what uh, in, the, in the book, Frankenstein, you know, the creature eventually does start killing people. That's a pretty serious social transgression. Okay, so when we use this kind of label, this allows us to, in part, control other people's behavior. And this is very relevant for our culture today. What do you think that image is conveying? What part of our culture? Social media, okay. And when someone says something that they shouldn't have said, or maybe they did something that they shouldn't have done, or they cancel culture, exactly, okay? So when we label another person as monstrous and we cancel them, we are saying, you have done this thing that's not socially acceptable in our culture today, and we are now labeling you as dangerous and monstrous, and we're not going to listen to you anymore. We're not going to read your posts. We're not going to watch your clips. You're done. You're out. Okay, it is a form of social control. Okay, it is a way that we control others. Another thing that um, that that we do when you know other people, um, what's what's the sound? Okay. Okay, so another way that we, um, you know, label people as other is when we want to dominate them, okay? It can be a justification for domination. So we label a whole group of people as other, and we consider all of those others as monstrous or non-human-like, then that can be a justification for dominating them. Okay, so for example, uh, Rwandan genocide, that picture in black and white is of the aftermath of the Rwandan genocide. Um, and one of the things that contributed to that genocide was a calling out of a group of people in that, in that country as less than human. They were repeatedly called names of being less than human. 
And when we do that repeatedly again and again, we dehumanize, we make them not human, and it makes it a lot easier for then us, whoever us is, to become monstrous ourselves, okay, and treat them really badly. So oftentimes there is a rejection of the other or the monster. And I just wanted to bring this in because, again, this is a kind of another theme of the book, this idea of rejection, isolation, um, you know, that we see in, in things like cancel culture today or we saw in the Rwandan genocide. I know those things sound really totally different. But in both cases, we're saying this is the other. These people or this person is not socially acceptable. It's the same thing that happened in Frankenstein. The creature wants to make friends with people and is rejected repeatedly because of how he looks. What does that rejection do to people? Resentment, okay? Resentment, anger, right? Um, and it can create monstrous behavior. It can create monstrous behavior. We as humans have a need for social connection. We might feel like, no, we can go it alone. I don't really need anybody. You know, I'm an independent person, but we need others. We need connection, okay? It's essential for our mental health. Our bodies physically suffer when we, we feel isolated, when we feel rejected. And when that happens, it can create, absolutely can create mental health issues. It's also significant in identity formation as well. So when you think about who you are, part of who you are is how other people see you. You know, so like, well, how does my hair look today? How do my clothes look today? How do I appear to other people? Some of that is then taken in by you as this, is, this must be who I am. So if other people keep seeing you as monstrous, how will you eventually maybe start to see yourself? perhaps, you know, having some of those characteristics. That, by the way, is called the looking glass self. And this definitely is what we see happen in the novel. Frankenstein's creature um, is mistreated by others. Uh, others are horrified by his appearance. Um, and he is ostracized. You know, he's rejected. And he starts to see himself that way as well, as being monstrous. When we look at the formation of serial killers, you know, that slide that we were so interested in before, this is not everything, okay? So just being socially rejected doesn't make a serial killer, but it certainly can contribute for people who are already predisposed. Um, and there are some brain differences, some neurological differences um, for people who eventually become serial killers or for people who are what we might label as psychopaths or having the dark triad, okay? Um, there's a really interesting um, case. I'll get the, the person's name. He's a neuroscientist, a contemporary neuroscientist, um, who he was doing a bunch of PET scans on psychopaths. Bless you. Bless you. He was doing a number of PET scans on psychopaths and I'm not seeing his name. Um, 
Anyways, he was doing a bunch of PET scans on psychopaths. He decided to bring his family in to do some PET scans on them because he had some open time on the scanner. He was looking for some things um, in family members' brains. He was looking for um, maybe evidence of disease, I think it was Alzheimer's that he was looking at. And uh, when he got the reports back from the PET scans, he found that um, there was, they had mixed them up and that one, there was one really horrible psychopath in his family and they must have mixed those scans up and they said no no we didn't mix the scans up and he realized that that no that scan was someone in his family so who is this lurking psychopath in his family it was him it was him so why was he not a serial killer why why was he not going on a rampage um you know a, a significant part of that so he had the physical makeup the PET scan made him look like he was a psychopath. He had that in common with serial killers. He did not become a serial killer because he had a very loving childhood. You know, he had a childhood that was an ideal kind of childhood with parents and family who doted on him. Okay, so you have to have both. You have to have that predisposition and you have to have um, some environmental trauma as well. What I was trying to say here, though, is that social rejection itself can create monstrosity. Okay? All right, and I'm going to turn it over to Jason. Do you want to sit or do you want to stand? No, I'll stand. Okay. How's everybody doing? It is always really tough to talk after Laura. It's always super tough to talk after Laura. Um, I'm going to talk about social anxieties and collective fears. This thing on? I'll just use this. Ah, oh, you know, I'll just do this. Oh, okay. Ooh, and I went too far now. <laughs> oh, thank you. I better put on my glasses while we're doing this. There you go. Collective fears in Frankenstein. Why are we into horror? I know not all of you are into horror. Some of you weren't here because your teachers told you to be here um, or because you're getting extra credit. But why are we into horror? What do you think? What is it that draws us to be interested in this in a way that maybe if I showed you a video of something just as scary, like, I don't know, dental work or something like that, you would, you would disappear. What do we think? So it's an adrenaline rush, and it's a way to control some of our own fears. Very good answer. Any others? It's not ordinary. Yeah, hopefully you're not living a life that's like a horror movie. I myself feel like I'm living in a horror movie because Choco Tacos are gone. But, you know, most of us have different fears than I do. Any others? Interesting quote from Vasily Grossman, a writer during the Soviet period of Stalingrad, talks a little bit about the fact that we have some common themes in our lives, and one of them is that we're all going to feel pain. Another is that it's dealing with the fact that at some point 
most horror movies accept the fact that we're all at some point going to die. This is from a movie called The Seventh Seal. This is Ingmar Bergman. When a knight walks in and there's a painter who's painting, this is during the Black Plague, so 1348. And the painter is painting all sorts of really gory stuff on the wall, incredibly stuff, putrefying bodies. And the squire walks in, he says, no one's going to look at that. And he says, oh, yeah, they will. A skull is more interesting than a naked woman. <sighs> oh, and I went too far again. David Cronenberg, one of the greatest film directors out there, says it very poignantly. There are ways of confronting us with the fact that we're all going to die. This is one of the earliest themes in literature that we know of. This is a tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh, the first recorded piece of literature that we know of. If you've never read it, there's some really good versions out there, but it's essentially about someone whose friend dies, he tries to bring him back, and he can't. The first zombie movies were about this. This is from a film called Jacques in World War I, where all the soldiers buried here eventually came back to tell the French people they were unworthy of the sacrifice. So it's natural that we're going to come to some ideas and say, what if we didn't have to die? What if there's ways we could get around this? You know where this is from, maybe? Yeah, the the worst trilogy of them, right? This is throwing some shade there, I know. <laughs> but literature is replete full of ideas that there are sometimes people that can cheat death, but a lot of times it might not be worth the price we pay. 19th century English literature in particular is full of these. This is from, anybody know it? The Portrait of Dorian Gray, right? This story about a guy who stays the same age, but he's got this portrait of himself that ages instead of him. And I don't want to spoil it for you, but yeah, things happen in it. <laughs> it's funny that in some ways, if you've read Frankenstein or are familiar with it, that this is when he looks into the reflection in the water and he discovers that he himself is a monster, that there's something very very Genesis about this, very book of Genesis, revealing that you've got the information, that you know that you're a monster because you're looking at it. Kind of the quintessential one at the very end of the 19th century is, of course, Dracula, the story about, well, maybe there is somebody that can live forever, but is it worth the price you got to pay for it? Vampires in and of themselves are creatures out of 18th century Turkish literature. They come to Europe via a kind of convoluted route. And by the 19th century, they were very, very popular ideas throughout Europe. But let's talk about fear in Great Britain in 1818. Some of these are things that we're afraid of today. Some of them are things that are a little bit different. Great Britain was a well, and it still is an island, right? You can never get further than 75 miles away from the coast. So it's kind of an island, but it's also very much connected to who we are as well. One of the big things that 19th century British people were terrified of was premature burial. I know, just thinking about it kind of gives you the heebie-jeebies, doesn't it? Like, ugh. Well, there were some possible reasons why. Doctors at the time had no idea how to tell if someone had a very faint pulse. We know you can check a pulse, but if it's a really weak one, maybe you don't know about it. And so what they used to do was they used to have morgues as public activities. 
The word morgue itself comes from morgueur, which is a French word for to stare. So people would walk by if you lost a family member in the crowded cities of London or Hull or Manchester or any of these areas where people were flocking to, this might be where you go to look to see if you can find them. And in true English fashion, these became places that people would start to hang out. There would be street food on the area. There were people selling toys in the area looking at bodies. We're going to return to this because there's something else about this that I'll be telling you about later. The idea of the wake itself. In many cultures, before you have the funeral for someone, you have something called the wake. The wake is supposed to be, well, if the person is truly alive, hopefully they'll wake up right about now, right? But even then, sometimes they didn't. If you had a very faint pulse, the, st the stethoscope was not invented yet. If your breathing was incredibly shallow, people were afraid what would happen if you get buried and you were still alive. That is not a super comfortable thought. So they developed these things called safety coffins. You can see the person here does something and they ring a bell. What's the creepiest thing is that a lot of times you would go by a 19th century English cemetery with these and the bells would go off. I know, it just chills you a little bit, doesn't it? The good news, they actually were dead. The bad news, it's because the act of decay moves the body and you hear a ringing. Oh my God, he's, and then you pull them out and kind of wish you didn't. So there were all sorts of different ways that people were trying to come up with how you could tell if an actual body was dead or not. One of these was something created by Luigi Galvani, and it was called galvanism. It's where you would take electrical current and you would run it through a body, and you discovered that it would cause a lot of pain, but you could get even dead bodies to start moving. One of the people that was really, really interested in this was Mary Shelley. You can see from point A to point B where this is going. The person is still dead, but what if enough electrical current ran through them that maybe you could kickstart the heart again? or rework this. This was not a cost-effective way of dealing with the problem. Electricity was not a super common thing in 1816 in England, and even if it was, it, it was just impossible. But it was one of those things that was right on the borders of science that had enough intrigue that people were really kind of fascinated by it. The other thing about England, talking about when Mary Shelley wrote the book between 1816 and 1818, is 1816, I'm a math teacher, but I don't have that many fingers. I think 1815 came right before 1816, right? What happened in England in 1815? Or in the English Empire, I guess. The Battle of Waterloo. Whoever said that was totally right. <laughs> the end of the Napoleonic Wars. In the United States in the 21st century, it's tough to get an idea as far as what total war mobilization looked like. So I got some numbers for you. Population, you know how to read. Why am I reading this to you? <laughs> so roughly about 10% of the entire population of the United Kingdom was mobilized during this war. Out of those, about 3% were killed. They didn't keep numbers as far as how many were wounded, and wounds could run from anywhere from you got a couple of big scars to your legs being taken off to all sorts of really horrible things. These were around everywhere and nobody talked about them. Right before the Battle of Waterloo, each soldier was asked to write a letter assuming that they were going to be killed. Can you imagine the trauma that would do? 
you're going into some place where you will probably be killed. Then you got to write a letter saying like, hey, this is all the stuff I wanted to say, but I couldn't. This is one particular letter that they found, and yeah, he was killed. Victorian mourning customs were very, very deep. They were very heavy things. This is in the proto-Victorian phase. This is in the Georgian phase, if you know your Jane Austen. So we're not quite there yet, but we're at a phase where mourning was a very, very deep part of English consciousness. Arthur Halen, the guy that died, he actually did have a memorial, but the problem is that it was in Waterloo, which is in Belgium. Travel was very, very heavy, and it was very difficult. It was very costly at this time, even for nobles. So most people never really got a chance to mourn. So how would they reach out to say potentially their goodbyes to somebody that they could never say goodbye to? Well, we'll talk about that. One of the really unfortunate things about the Battle of Waterloo and of British soldiers that served was a lot of times their bodies, even if they were memorialized, weren't given proper treatment. You can see that right now, the same guy, Arthur Halen, his medals are being sold, but was made even worse. Well, I'll let the words speak for themselves. If you had a body that was left, you were lucky at this point. There were numbers of different companies out there that would go to former battle sites, dig people up, and then turn them into fertilizer, selling them back to the British. This was to some extent known. It's tough to know how much they knew because they were kind of confronted with misinformation all the time. But this was known by people, is that these were people that you never got a chance to say goodbye to, and their bodies were turned into fertilizer. Kind of an aside, Frankenstein has always kind of got this theory of war behind it. When it was made into a movie, you probably know like the, it's alive, from the 1950s. James Whale was the person that did this. He was also a survivor of World War I. He never really talked about it, but you can see some of the efforts of his work through the film. Those that did survive came back, and they were all over English society, and they were changed. Here's one particular guy. His name is Arthur, no, um, Henry Wyndham is this guy. Henry Wyndham was one of the rare people that we know of having PTSD when he came back. He went to the war, and then he came back completely changed. Um, he had to close a gate during the Battle of Waterloo. At one point, a French soldier got a drop on him, pulled a gun on him, a different soldier shot him, and for the rest of his life, he couldn't physically close a door. He couldn't bring himself to do it. Other people had to do that for him. We think PTSD is more rare, but we're not sure because nobody talked about it back then. It was absolutely off limits to anybody at any sort of public event. One thing we do know is that the amount of intoxicants that British Army officials used were extremely high. When you think about 19th century early Britain, you're not thinking of a place where sobriety was common. But the British Army was a whole different thing. Napoleon was known for tripling wine rations in order to get his soldiers to attack a different group of units because you don't want to do that. And just as the process of doing this, the British Army usually kept its soldiers in some state of drunkenness all the time. <laughs> Then they come home, 
They discover that they're alcohol dependent and their minds are completely changed. People that have long-term alcohol abuse and dependency, they can be very, very different people from who they were a couple of decades before, even a couple of years before sometimes. The other great fear is after you're dead, well, what comes after that? This is at a time when science was becoming a more popular thing, and the human anatomy was a source of interest. Henry VIII, in the previous century, had said, all right, you can actually open up bodies to look at them to see kind of how things work. But the problem was that there were very few bodies available. In 1752, the Murder Act said that anybody that was charged that was able to be executed, instead of having them publicly hang in the gallows the way they would have, they could be given to doctors to dissect but there's just not that many murderers out there. And so as a result, where are people going to get some very lucrative amounts of money by finding bodies that they can sell to doctors for dissection? What do you think? Grave, oh, yeah, yeah, grave robbing. English law was a bizarre thing at the time. One of the things about stealing a body was for some time, it wasn't even against the law. After all, who is it affecting, right? The person's gone. Later on, they made it our version of a misdemeanor. So something could pay off with a fine. However, if you stole the articles of clothing or the jewelry off the person, then that became a felony. So as a result, grave robbers would often go in in gangs late at night, taking bodies out of cemeteries, usually fresh, right, because that's the way it was, and then selling them off to people that would do some different sorts of work on them. Knowing this, and knowing that a lot of times that there just weren't always ways to mourn, this is when the idea of seances really became popular. When you think about seances, you might think of people getting together, trying to summon the spirit of somebody. This is really when seance and spiritualism became very popular in Britain. The idea that there were a lot of people that were gone and there was no sort of mourning custom for them at all, and trying to come up with coping systems or ways to deal with that loss through society. And seances were often it. Laura, do you want to talk about this or should I? Or? Uh, either way. Either way. How about you? Both. Yeah. Okay. I got to hand it back over. All right. So um, we wanted to engage in some discussion now at this point. Um, so when we think about what is monstrosity and what's represented, uh, what, it, what it represents in the novel, um, I wanted you guys to think about, is it Dr. Frankenstein who is monstrous? Is it the creature? Was it reactions of society? So again, it's Dr. Frankenstein who creates the creature. He rejects the creature. The creature wants connection. He you know, watches people. He kind of follows people around trying to get connected. Everybody rejects him. And then the creature goes out and kills people. So what do you all think? Who, who is the monster here? Danielle? And when he finally 
Daniela, yeah. You don't need to repeat the whole thing, but so, so what Danielle was saying was initially that it's Dr. Frankenstein because of um, him being kind of obsessive about it, right? And digging up body parts, presumably, right? Developing this fever and then running away. And, and then you can continue. Yeah, so he never expected to actually achieve it. And once he does, he runs away from it. And then later, the um, Frankenstein's monster actually confronts Doctor, the Dr. Frankenstein, and he says, hey, you know, you're my father, and I don't understand. He wanted to know him so I can know who I am. And so he, I think Dr. Frankenstein was the first one who showed him how to, what monstrosity was. And then from then on, um, like the family, he was following with the father and the grandfather, and he was chopping, uh, I think it was wood or something for yeah. them. And they was happy, but then when he finally revealed, who it was, they turned their back on him too. But it was fine when he was helping them get through the winters. So it was from there, it was like a domino effect. And then maybe the monster, Frank Stein's monster thought that this was the way he was you know, meant to be because he didn't know what else to do. They both became consumed. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So basically you're saying it's all three, right? Yeah, and, and we see themes for all three of them, right? So we see themes of um, the other, you know, a monstrosity in terms of difference, just physical deformity. We see the dual nature of the person. We see social transgressions. We see all of it. Um, and we see rejection and social isolation from um, reactions of society. Um, Okay, I, I guess with these in mind, I guess what Jason and I wanted to do at this point is to open it up to questions from you all, questions or comments, or if you wanted to answer any of the other questions up there, what are your own um, perceptions of monstrosity? What are some of your fears? How does this contribute to your understanding of what a monster is? Um, so you could answer that or you could just ask questions. Oh, I forgot one thing real fast. Remember how I said, can I go back yeah. real fast? Sorry, this is how my lectures are too. So I mentioned that I was going to come back to this real fast. One of the other ways that grave robbers would work is somebody would show up to the morgue and say, oh, I lost poor, and then look at the name, if there was a name. This is my husband. And then they would use that to take the body away to sell it. So it was kind of like pretending the person was like the lost dog thing. Like, oh, that's my lost dog. Come on. But it's a dead body. So. Sorry, I just sucked all the air out of the room, didn't I? I am so sorry. <laughs> you can actually go to that next one. Yeah, because I'm an old man. I think that I'm cool. I got to put a meme in there, right? Thoughts, questions, comments? Opinions? Danielle? Wait, I have the microphone so we can hear. Yeah. So, also, when uh, Frankenstein's monster confronted Frankenstein, he wanted him to make him a wife. And then Frankenstein, um, Dr. Frankenstein was like, no, why would I do that? And um, he was like, so I wouldn't be alone, you know? So, 
I did kind of wonder, like, if that was you and you created Frankenstein, would you make him a wife? Or would you, uh, uh, you know, realize what you've done and be a so uh, companion to Frankenstein's monster? Or just say no, just leave him? I, I feel like in the book, Dr. Frankenstein says, He's going to make him a wife. So first off, he says he's going to, and then he doesn't. But he starts saying, well, then I'm going to make another one of these monsters. And what if they, like, have monster kids? And then what if they take over the earth and destroy us all? And da 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 da, da. So that's kind of his mindset. I feel like, well, the book is, I feel like I, I agree with you completely, where it's saying the creature isn't the monster here. It's Dr. Frankenstein that's the monster the whole time. So would I have done it? I mean, well, yeah, probably. I mean, first off, creating monsters sounds like fun. But second, yeah, I mean, absolutely. It's a part of what he said he was going to do. And it would be, I don't know. He, he very clearly says he feels alone. This is something that's rejected by everybody. I don't know. I feel like that's something that would be morally obligated to do. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I, I had the same feeling, you know, um, um, the the creature comes across um, as really um, sad, uh, you know, someone who's just been completely isolated and rejected from everybody that he's tried to reach out to. And he's done all of these positive things and everybody just keeps rejecting him because of how he looks. They won't even give him a chance. And he has no way to connect to anybody. And Dr. Frankenstein is, you know, in his wanderings, he's like, woe is me. There's this other creature out there that I've created, you know, and it's all about me, me, me. I kind of see him as kind of narcissistic. And, you know, sure, I mean, the creature does then turn um, when he's rejected and he can't find any connections. Um, but I, I definitely agree that Dr. Frankenstein was the original monster, like you had said, Danielle. And I think that, you know, the giving him someone else who would accept him potentially would have made the situation better. But, you know, who am I to say, right? Anyways, other questions? Yes. Hello. Um, going Hello. back to the uh, previous slide where it asks if uh, society is more willing to understand or only condemn, I do feel like society is more willing to condemn than understand. A lot of us are set in our ways and a lot of us do not want to change those ways. Um, if you look at it from social media point of view, again, this uh, generation is a lot different now. We have technology. It's easier to voice your opinions online and that can also result into like censorship also. I feel like in a way people aren't entitled or not entitled, but can't even have their own opinions on things without the fear of getting rejected. And then that rejection can then play into the role of also not wanting to be around people or creating more social anxiety. So I do feel like people are more willing to condemn because it's the easier route versus trying to understand a circumstance or trying to understand another mindset. Yeah, I, I appreciate your comment. I, I think that um, 
I think that you're right uh, and that people, um, it, it is a lot easier to condemn than it is to understand and our automatic intuitive response is, is to condemn. Um, it's also a lot easier to condemn online when you don't have to look the other person in the eye, right? Uh, and I would agree with you that is one aspect of how social media has created more anxiety. There are, there are several. Um, but that is one, uh, and people are concerned with saying the wrong thing, so why interact? Because you might say the wrong thing. You know, let's, it better to just stand back and, and not contribute. And by that, we create monsters, right? Anyone else? I, and by All the right. way, you know, when, when you say that, it makes me think of um, uh, like the subculture of incels. Um, are you all familiar with subculture of incels? Um, so individuals who feel that they've been rejected. I mean, these are individuals who feel that they've been rejected and they, you know, talk to other people who feel that they've been rejected and that rejection turns to hate. I'm sorry, who is, yeah. Yeah, um, so I was just, I wanted to talk about how um, people are more willing to condemn um, because it's a lot easier to hate on a person for like specific traits um, because like you don't understand these same traits within yourself. Um, and like from that, I think people dehumanize others and that's why they lack empathy. Yeah, yeah, you're pointing out a, um, a really important psychological mechanism, and that is projection. You know, when there's something about yourself that you don't like, and you're not willing to accept it or acknowledge it, you place it onto others, you project it onto others, right? Yeah. Any other questions, comments, thoughts? Ready to wrap it up? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, thank you everyone for coming. How about a round thank of applause? Thank you, everybody. First. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Have a good day, everybody. <clears throat> All right. You got that extra credit.